0: Hi Koch Scholar family and friends, welcome to The Sip, the podcast that shares a taste of how Koch scholars around the world are igniting positive change. This season features amazing panels of scholar experts discussing interesting and timely topics. My name is Aisha Shebi, and I'm excited to lead you through this season. I'm a proud 2020 Koch scholar originally from Miami, Florida, and now a junior at Princeton University studying medical anthropology. I also have my own podcast called The Hybrid Podcast. For those who are listening and may not be a Coca-Cola scholar, welcome. We're so glad you're here. To give you a little background, the Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation is the largest achievement-based and corporate-sponsored scholarship program in the country. Each year, it awards $20,000 to 150 high school seniors across the country who share a unique passion for service and leadership. There are now over 6,000 Coke Scholars creating positive change around the world. If you want to learn more, you can visit their website, coca-colascholarsfoundation.org. cola For our final episode of season three, we will be joined by scholars Anthony Lim, Joelle Burbell, Athena Kahn, and Caitlin Chenna. They will discuss disparities and shortages in the healthcare industry, how to lead with heart, and more. Let's learn a little about them. Dr. C. Anthony Lim, a 1997 Koch Scholar, is the director of pediatric emergency medicine for the Mount Sinai Health System and the medical director of the pediatric emergency department and short stay unit at Mount Sinai Beth Israel. He is also an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine, Pediatrics, and Medical Education at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Joel Burrell, a 2013 Koch Scholar, is a Ghanaian American medical student at Washington State University. Committed to fighting health disparities in medicine through education, he regularly highlights racial disparities and biases in healthcare on social media, where his platforms have over half a million followers and 65 million impressions. Athena Khan, a 2015 scholar, is the CEO of Dreambound, which is creating a new supply of healthcare workers, starting with certified nursing assistants, paying for their training, and matching them to programs and employers. Athena previously worked at Johns Hopkins researching minority health disparities and started the nonprofit Coding It Forward to help government agencies modernize their systems. And finally, leading this conversation is 2009 Koch scholar, Caitlin Chenna. Following a decade in the news industry, Caitlin felt compelled to amplify people's voices to create change in the healthcare industry and obtained her master's of business administration and master's of health administration from the University of North Florida. Caitlin is joining Texas Children's Hospital as their incoming administrative fellow. Now, let's learn from these wise healthcare professionals.
1: Today's topic is really exciting. It's about improving healthcare systems. And basically, we all know that the goal of this podcast is to share a taste of what Koch scholars are doing around the world to ignite positive passion. And so, I'm excited because I'm a Koch scholar myself and I'm Caitlin Shanna and we have three other incredible Koch scholars here who are going to briefly um, share a little bit about where they are presently, what they hope to be able to see in um, health care. And then I will conclude with my um, introduction and then we'll jump into just a conversation about What we've seen in healthcare in the past, the present and future. So without further ado, the first person that I will introduce is Dr. Anthony Lem, who's a 1997 Koch scholar. Can you start off by sharing a little bit about where you're at in life?
2: Yeah, um, it's great to see you, uh, Caitlin. Um, Again, my name is Anthony Lim. Uh, I was a 97 Scholar. I am a 97 Scholar. Uh, I grew up in Virginia Beach, um, Virginia, and went to uh, school in Virginia, Uh, subsequently went to medical school in New York. And then now I am the uh, Director of Pediatric Emergency Medicine uh, for the Mount Sinai Health System.
1: Well, thank you for sharing. And then we're going to pass it over to Joelle, who's also well-known as a superstar on social media. Joel?
3: Hey, everyone. My name is Joel Brevelle. I'm a 2013 Coca-Cola scholar. I grew up in a little bit north of Seattle, Washington, in a town called Mukilteo, Um, but I currently live in Portland, Oregon now, where I'm a medical student at Washington State University. So a little bit overview of my journey. Um, I started off in the West Coast, but hopped over to the East Coast for undergrad, went to Yale, um, and graduated in 2017 my master's in medical science at Boston University, then decided to come back to the West Coast uh, for medical school. So I'm entering into my fourth year right now, but I'm actually gonna be taking a research year. And we'll be in Baltimore at Hopkins for one year, um, doing some research on orthopedic surgery. But really what I do right now on social media is I talk about healthcare disparities that exist in the field of medicine. I know as we're talking about improving the healthcare system, we'll definitely have to be talking about healthcare disparities, how they exist, and the things that we have to do in order to improve them. So excited to have that conversation.
1: Yes, and we're excited that you're able to provide your insight specifically in that area because we've seen a lot um, over the last three years when it comes to healthcare disparities. Well, Athena, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your work and what you currently do.
4: Yeah, I'm Athena Khan. I am a 2015 Koch scholar, grew up in Maryland, but now living in San Francisco. Right now, I'm co-founder and CEO of a company called Dreambound. Our vision is to create upward mobility for Americans by getting people started in trade jobs. So we're starting out with certified nursing assistants, which are kind of the people who work in nursing homes and hospitals, things like that, doing the, the real work there. But eventually, we're going to expand into things like medical assisting, EKG technician, RN, LVN, things like that. Um, So we pay for people to go through training, we match them to training programs and employers. And uh, right now we're serving some of the the biggest uh, employers of CNAs out in the country. So big nursing homes like Brookdale, hospital systems like Tennant.
1: And that's a critical need because we're gonna be talking about shortages and retention and employment. And that's a hard thing right now in the healthcare industry as a whole collectively. So thank you, Athena. Well, I'm also a Coke scholar. I'm a 2009 Coca-Cola scholars, um, Coke scholar, I should say. And I was in television news for more than a decade, fell in love with people's stories. And that's what led me into that direction. And then as a reporter, I covered a lot of um, healthcare-related stories at Mayo Clinic, and I was in a medical hub at the time in Jacksonville, and I just fell in love with the business side of healthcare and then kind of upped and quit my job, decided to go back to school, obtain two master's degrees, one in health administration, the other in business administration, and now currently just moved to Houston, Texas um, just recently and starting at Texas Children's Hospital as administrative fellow. So. A little bit of a 360. So we have a little bit of everyone on this panel. <laughs> well, to get started, I wanted to kind of start out. I know like the last three years, at least for myself, too, has been an eye opener just because of what we've seen with COVID. We were talking about innovative solutions to just persistent challenges that we constantly see in the news. So I was hoping that maybe um, Anthony, if you don't mind starting out by just sharing, like, how has healthcare either changed or evolved from a frontline perspective? by your experience of working um, in the emergency.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, You know, the last couple of years have been both a blur and also slow motion, Um, I, I will say that from the onset of the pandemic in March of 2020, um, what we found was a real need to integrate um, our system. Um, uh, You know, our health system has seven emergency departments. There are three pediatric emergency departments. And for us to be able to care for the onslaught of patients that came, um, we needed to be able to coordinate and collaborate. Uh, And that meant shifting, um, shifting resources, which include people, supplies, Um, We needed to uh, uh, load level the number of patients that were inundating our hospitals. And so, you know, what came of it was um, a much more integrated health system. Um, and now working towards using that, um, example in order to fix very common problems across, you know, that, that impact patients impact their families, um, have downstream effects, um, on both our supply chains, as well as, um, uh, uh, the way that we take care of patients. So uh, I think those are the biggest sort of changes, um, on the, the, the. Staffing and person front, I think it has really hit at home that you know healthcare providers are people too, um, that we have healthcare needs, including mental health needs, um, and you know I, I think the 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 trauma of the last couple of years, not just in taking care of patients, but you know we took care of each other um, at many points too, um, has really hit its toll, and 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 whether that is you know, um, healthcare was is is not um, absent from the Great Resignation. Um, there certainly is a very notable um, shortage of staff, in, in especially in terms of nurses um, in the field. Um, and and being able to approach that in a way that um, we can recruit and retain and sustain the wellness of everybody in our field, I think, is is, is become a, a really paramount issue for us.
1: I agree. And you tackled many issues all in one. Um, And just in one soundbite in a sense, so I was going to ask, like, Athena, if you don't mind sharing, too, to just to piggy off that, I know you already talked about being CEO of Dreambound, but when we talk about just a shortage of workers, specifically nurses, you mentioned tuition-free, so that is an added advantage for people that are wanting to get into healthcare. What do you mean by that, and how do we hope to be able to see that influence the numbers in the future?
4: Yeah, I mean, Anthony is totally right, and the shortage is getting even more insane with COVID, has been insane with COVID, but the problem is that even before COVID, these hospitals, nursing homes have been understaffed for decades, and so COVID only made it worse. I think what was really cool and enlightening to see was during the pandemic, you also had a lot of people raise their hands too. And they wanted to be able to serve their communities. They wanted to serve these vulnerable patients. But what we've seen even before the pandemic and now is that a lot of people who are incredibly motivated, incredibly compassionate would be great caregivers for others. What's often stopping them is the price of going through school, and these classes—they're—they're they're not that expensive for people, you know, like us who, um, you know, are, are, are working full-time jobs. But it can be a thousand to three thousand dollars, and for someone who's living paycheck to paycheck or unemployed or working part-time, that can be pretty infeasible to overcome. So at Dreambound, we pay for people to go through school in exchange they commit to working at one of our partner employers, and that kind of is a win-win solution for everyone. Where someone gets their tuition paid for, they get to become a certified nursing assistant. And on the other side, you have employers who really need to hire great people are now able to access this pipeline of talent that they wouldn't be able to otherwise access.
1: And that's a lot of great work that's being done. And Joelle, I was going to say, you're also assisting in that same area through your mentorship program. Can you elaborate how you are kind of aiding and trying to um, ensure that there isn't such a huge gap in the foreseeable future when it comes to healthcare workers?
3: Absolutely. And I definitely want to second what Athena was saying about how expensive it is (laughs) to go through medical school, to even apply into medical school school, to then go into residency afterwards, the application fees. It's insane. Um, But one thing I want to highlight when talking about that is ways that you can actually mitigate that as well. So you mentioned mentorship. I think one of the big problems is that many students can't see themselves in positions um, in in terms of being a physician in the future in a healthcare career. And so for me, my mentorship program is all about getting students to see people like themselves and to early on be able to get access to healthcare resources, to physicians, to understand how do you have to take the MCAT, what do you to do, what college should you go to, what should you major in, all that kind of important stuff to apply into medical school. But it's beyond that, it's also making sure students have resources like the Coca-Cola scholarship where they can fund um, college to be able to go through um, at a reduced rate so that when you get to medical school, you can actually pay for these things. And I think COVID also um, really shone a light on the health profession as a field that is both noble and also able to have a huge impact on the lives of other people. Um, in 2021, actually, the American Association of Medical Colleges saw that there was a 18% increase in the amount of applicants that applied into medical school. Um, and some schools even saw like a larger increase in that with, I think it was 24 schools reported like a 25% increase in applications in 2020. And a lot of people started calling this the Fauci effect, saying it was because Dr. Fauci was on TV all the time. People were saying, oh, I wanna go into medicine. But I think there's another explanation for it. And it was that medical schools started realizing how prohibitive uh, it was for people to apply into it, the cost of things. So many schools waived the MCAT, which is the the, the, the exam you have to take to, in order to get into medical school. Many schools didn't have in-person interviews anymore. So that means people aren't having to pay for traveling to hotels or staying um, and actually having to stay two nights or buying meals and flights and all that kind of stuff. I think all those types of things allowed for people to actually be able to apply into medicine, but maybe before they were not thinking about it. So I think all these things um, in conjunction need to work, work in terms of inspiring mentorship, reducing the barriers into the uh, access to higher education, and then also understanding that it's expensive right now. And if we want to diversify the workforce, we really need to be reaching into communities that don't have the resources and giving them access to these.
1: And it seems like that's a common thread across many platforms is access and accessibility. Now they're not just in the education department, but also to be able to receive healthcare. So, all three of us have, or all three of you have definitely experienced, myself included, from an administrative side, is people are unable to get the healthcare that they need at the time that they need it. So from each of your guys' platforms, what are you hoping to do, or what shift do you hope to see in the upcoming months to be able to make sure that people are able to get the necessary items needed to be able to take care of themselves and their families?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think for us, one of the challenges of of emergency medicine is that it ends up being a catch-all. Um, it is the place where people go when they can't get care. And this is especially, you know, um uh, pertinent for for underserved and marginalized communities. And so, you know, my philosophy and, and, and the work that, that we have done has been to do our best to bring healthcare to our patients. So there used to be this, um, Almost debate within emergency medicine about what our role in preventative care and primary, um, primary care, um, is. And should we be doing asymptomatic STD testing in the emergency department? I, you know, fortunately, um, uh, uh, wiser minds sort of like rose to the top, and we do do that. We do HIV screening in the in the emergency department. We do hepatitis C screening in the emergency department. We offer and distribute PrEP in the emergency department. And these are two groups of folks that literally the doctor that they see when they ask when you ask when a patient when you ask a patient who your primary care provider is they will name one of us in the emergency department because that's the person that they saw, and and were it for not for that. Um, they would never have gotten that HIV test. They would never have gotten PrEP. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the 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 benefit in the long run in, in providing access is that, you know, I'll add one extra thing is, you know, there was a big explosion in telehealth. During the pandemic, Um, it has done wonderful things, especially in the field of mental health, especially in the areas of the country that are really underserved with regards to mental and behavioral health. Um, But it's not necessarily the panacea. Like just because you can have telehealth does not mean you have health literacy. um, Mm -hmm. You know, by no means. And and counting our you know touch bases by the number of people we have on telehealth is not the same as as counting. Their, their health, their well-being, uh, and, and those other metrics that I think can be just as
1: important. 100%. And when we talk about mental health, I mean, that also impacts not only employers that we're seeing, but also like people that are coming into the emergency room. When I worked in the emergency room, I worked in the revenue cycle and people were coming in distraught and in distress. And part of that is because they couldn't see their primary care doctor or if they were looking for a therapist or a psychiatrist or a psychologist, you know, they were booked out three to four months in advance, and they're having a crisis right now. And where do you turn to? You turn to the emergency room. But as for the care that the organization I was previously working with, it took several hours to even days before they would actually be able to get into a facility that was able to treat them specifically for that mental health concern. And part of that is, is just there wasn't enough resources in the community and talk about supply and demand. We saw an uptick in pediatrics, but you also didn't have um, the care that adults needed. And so, how do you best infiltrate that within a community?
2: Absolutely, I mean, you know, pediatrics, um, uh, um, psychiatrists and psychologists, it's like finding a unicorn. And I live in New York City. Um, it is, you know, our volumes have gone up by 20%. Our lengths of stay have gone up by, by at least 20%. And that is exactly that, that, that reflects the, the capacity of our health system to take care of the, of, of children. And then, of course, as you mentioned, you know, things like your social support, your, um, connection and your networking, um, are such important factors of your mental health that being in quarantine and isolation and not having you know, in-person school and all of those things the last couple of years have certainly taken their toll.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I would say a lot of this also impacts social media because a lot of people are sharing their stories on social media. So Joelle, I was hoping to be, I kind of get your perspective on this. You talk about barriers and what people experience on social media, on Instagram, on TikTok, on different platforms, and how have these channels allowed more people to feel connected But at the same time, it can also be a hindrance and can cause more damage if it's not, if you're not looking at the right person or if the content isn't filtered in an appropriate way.
3: Absolutely. It's something I think about a lot, having accurate information, uh, making sure it's information that people, that's actionable, that can actually help people. And it's not just raising fear or preventing you from going to the doctor. Um, And a lot of the the things I talk about right now are about healthcare disparities, so in in all senses of the word, whether that's things like maternal mortality or different treatments for Black populations or COVID vaccine hesitancy, all that kind of stuff I kind of weave into my platforms in order to talk about why it exists, the historical context behind it, what we can do going forward. Um, But really, the, the reason I even started doing it in the first place was when I was a second year medical student, I remember... COVID had just hit, Um, I'm sitting inside my room, I'm hearing about all these things happening. I kept hearing the black community is more likely to get COVID. Yet in our classes, we didn't dive into the social determinants of health, those outside things that are also impacting patients uh, and and explaining why that was happening. So I started doing more digging, looking into it and found a lot of shocking things. For example, pulse oximeters, which we use inside the the hospital all all the time, can overestimate oxygen saturation in black patients. And there was a study that just came out a few weeks ago that showed because it was overestimating that oxygen saturation, many patients were turned away when they should have actually gotten care in the emergency department or been admitted into the hospital, specifically black patients. Um, and, And so many other things as well. When you look at even my own education, dermatology, we never really looked at what conditions looked like on darker skin compared to lighter skin. And when you look at studies, they show that diseases like Lyme disease are more likely to be diagnosed later in Black patients compared to patients with lighter skin. So I'm seeing, I started seeing all these types of things and all these disparities that were existing and started putting it online because I wasn't learning it in my own medical school classes. I was wondering, are people that aren't in the medical field at all, just patients wanting to get their own healthcare, are they receiving it? And the response has been incredible, both from people in the medical field, but also outside the medical field. I think one of my favorite series I've done so far is about dermatology and comparing how dermatology conditions look like on darker and lighter skin. And I'll get quite literally thousands of comments. Like the, the videos will get five million views plus, um, and plus thousands of comments of people saying I've never seen um, like eczema on darker skin, or I've never seen mm-hmm. hereditary reparativa on darker skin. And it's people saying, maybe I should actually go to the dermatologist t- now because I didn't realize this could have been something, but maybe it is. And uh, and one of my followers actually reached out to me because I talked about a specific type of melanoma called acral lentiginous melanoma. Um, and they ended up going to the hospital, getting it biopsied. It was precancerous. And so they reached out saying, thank you so much for like posting that video. I never knew that Black people could get even any type of melanoma. Uh, this is like this is awesome that you're posting videos about it so all that to say that i think the videos i'm putting out are really trying to reach a different audience one that hasn't been exposed to the healthcare system but has healthcare needs And i think when we're able to put communities of color specifically at the forefront we're able to hide in our overall system encourage more people to go to the hospital allow them to take control of their own health and give them the language of medicine that they need to actually take advantage um, of bettering their own health
1: yeah. And I was going to say, people want to follow you. If other Koch scholars want to join in on the conversation and become more educated or aware, what are your various platforms that you're on? And also what's your handle?
3: Yeah. So I'm on TikTok is my main one. Instagram is okay. another main one. Twitter, I'm starting to dabble in right now. <laughs> but my handle is just my name, at Joelle Breville.
1: Perfect. And you have like, almost like, I think more than a million, if I'm correct, when I looked at it, right? Not
3: more than a million quite yet. Okay.
1: I feel about like you're close... Million. Okay, half a million. Okay, okay. okay. (laughs) You're up there for sure. And that leads me into Athena talking about technology. You've created a nonprofit to kind of leverage technology to be able to make better informed decisions for healthcare organizations at large. So how has technology been able to influence your medium of ensuring that the conversation continues to improve and we don't become stagnant and move backwards?
4: Yeah, before DreamBound, I started a nonprofit called Coding It Forward, actually with another Koch scholar, Neil Mehta, who's awesome, um, and, and some other people as well. But our mission was to improve the technological and uh, improve how modernize the, or modernize these systems in federal government. So we worked with agencies like Department of Health and Human Services, Department of State, um, Department of Veteran Affairs to... Um, build better platforms that are directly touching very vulnerable populations. Um, And and, I mean, that a lot is what informed my uh, mission and vision behind DreamBound as well, which is actually a for-profit instead of non-profit. But I saw that it it really wasn't enough. I mean, for people who are very low income, who's the vast majority of our customers, especially like uh, most of our customers at DreamBound are very low income, black and brown women. Um, They are often on a lot of benefits programs like Medicaid and SNAP. But even those aren't enough to get someone out of the cycle of poverty and to improve their and also health, because one of the big social determinants of health is, is definitely income and even like maternal education level and things like that. And so... You see that has a lot of cascading effects as if someone's in this cycle of poverty that affects their health, their outcomes, affects their children's health outcomes um, to, to come. And so we wanted to really break that cycle and help people get started in the field of healthcare. And that kind of uh, uh, allows us to, or allows us women to, and, and men to be able to start having Um, the ability to provide for themselves and their families, while also pursuing something very like intellectually challenging, fulfilling in that way. Um, And Athena, I was going
1: to ask you, it looked like undergrad and graduate students could be able to join in and actually get paid to be able to do some of the coding. Is that something like Koch scholars could be a part of? So if they're in undergrad or going to graduate school, could they join to be able to help with the future?
4: Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm less involved with Coding It Forward now, but it, it, it is a paid internship that was super important to us because a lot of the federal government internships and government internships in general are unpaid, unfortunately, and that's something that's starting to shift in the tide a little bit. But it was very important to us if you want to compete against Google, Facebook, <laughs> software engineering internships that are paying, you know, whatever, 8 to 10K monthly, like you need to be able to offer something that's just as competitive if You if you want the best talent to go work in government. Um, So definitely a lot of organizations are helping out with paying for some of that. We also contract directly with the government or subcontract with them in order to get students paid. Um, And it gives students the opportunity to be able to try something new and um, use their technical skills for good.
1: Yeah. Well, it's another opportunity for Coke scholars to get involved, especially if they're IT savvy, which is not me. <laughs> um, but I wanted to jump in. I wanted to also share. We have a few emails that came in earlier that talked a little bit about um, Koch scholars wanting to ask questions about just improving healthcare as a whole. So I was going to read one from a 2021 Koch scholar. Her name's Chloe. And she asked, I'm currently interning at a nonprofit in Durham, North Carolina, that assists with low income citizens that... Um, or need to, be, they need to be getting connected to various resources, including um, health insurance, so Medicaid, Medicare, and Marketplace. So recently, I have worked with several members who don't qualify for Medicaid or Medicare, but fall under the income requirements to sign up for the Marketplace insurance. She's asking, can you talk more about this gap in healthcare insurance for people who need it and what are their best options? this kind
2: of highlights a lot of the, the gaps that, that, that we see in healthcare, you know, uh, I think the one of the most, um, publicized gaps was the Medicare gap. Um, um, the, 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 pharmacy benefit gap, and that was, you know, way long ago and it took a very long time to, to address it, if not. Um, and I'll say, you know, at least for my part, um, it's, it, it's, it's a lot worse for, you know, underserved and un, under, um, uh, and marginalized populations. You know, I always say it's like, if children could vote, they would have such better health care. <laughs> um, if, you know, and, and, and it, it's unfortunate that it is that, but that's another one of the areas, um, um, that is lacking. And so, you know, I think this is an example of this institutionalized biases that we have in our, um, society that sort of, continue to promote these disparities in care. I'm so glad Athena is doing the work that she is doing um, because, you know, one of them is, are these internships? Like you you have to be able to support and sustain yourself for a summer to get, uh, you know, to be able to take advantage of some of these internships. We always talk about the scholars network and what kind of difference that being a Coca-Cola scholar can make to somebody's life that might be on the cusp, or really not on the cusp at all. Um, and whether it is the Actual scholarship to be able to go to a, a school that they may not have been able to before, or to be in the network of folks that that I and you and each of us here have have really benefited from in the years since. Um, I think it makes a big difference. So, you know, I, I would say that it, it can vary state by state. Um, some states have already covered that gap, and so you know, North Carolina which is just a little outside of my my scope <laughs> may have a different approach um, than New York State.
4: Yeah, I agree. I mean, the coverage gap is insane. I uh, remember looking into, I think, Alabama requirements. So maybe when the pandemic was just started, we were building like a portal to help people access their unemployment benefits. It was something Mm -hmm. like if you were making 20K, you were not eligible for Medicaid, which is just insane. I mean, that is not enough to cover even your normal Mm -hmm. daily living expenses, much less another like $500 a month on health insurance, which is crazy. And unfortunately, like because states kind of choose whether or not whether they want to expand Medicaid, that gap is going to continue to exist until those states decide to, you know, close that gap. And so unfortunately, that kind of leaves it up to employers to fill up that gap, where if you get a job that has health insurance, that's really your only option, if not Medicaid or Medicare. Um, or it not being able Work to out of pocket. And if you can't get a job, I mean, you're kind of out of luck, but otherwise hopefully um, people have those pathways that can get them started in a role that provides for them in, in the healthcare benefits that way.
1: And Joel, have you seen this too when you talk about um, healthcare disparities? I mean, people trying to figure out at the end of the day, healthcare is a business, right? They're, you have to be able to keep the lights on in the buildings, be able to pay the physicians, their nurse practitioners and everyone that's a part of the team, but you recognize that not one person can't absorb that entire cost when they're needing care. They should be able to receive care at a reasonable rate. Have you seen this and have you talked about this in some of your conversations?
3: Definitely, yeah. I've talked about this a lot because many times I post a video to my followers and the comments will say things like, I, like I'm like i worried about going to the hospital because it's expensive. Like I don't want to get that surprise bill at the end of the day. Um I've talked multiple. a lot about- Exactly, multiple, <laughs> multiple surprise bills at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, Or talked about just like, pharmaceutical drugs or just medication that you need and how expensive it is. Um, I actually have a video coming out pretty soon talking about Mark Cuban and how he's putting out out that new marketplace right now in order to try and have lower cost drugs for people. Um, So I I always try, what I try to do is point people in directions that they can try and subsidize costs or figure out what are some types of things that can be done in order to to make healthcare more affordable for you. Um, But I I mean, I I think healthcare overall needs to be more transparent. That's one of the things, it's one of the only industries where you go in to the hospital not knowing how much you're gonna pay. And that should never be the case when there's things that are life threatening. So it's unfortunate the amount of people I've seen in my DMs or even just that will stitch videos and make their own videos and tag me of saying, I can't pay for my medical bills right now. Can you highlight a GoFundMe for me? Or can you talk about this and get people to direct resources outside of the system to me because I can't pay for this right now and I have cancer, I have this diagnosis I don't know what to deal with that's a chronic condition. Um, So for I guess from my perspective, it's um, just so disheartening to see uh, how many people there are like that, and hoping that more can be done in the future.
2: You know, one of the reasons, um, I decided to go into emergency medicine is, um, our doors are always open, right? Because of MTALA regulations, um, insurance is not the first thing that we check. We, we do your vitals and we see how you are doing, right? And it it is a common equalizer, but still with that, you know, to your point, Caitlin, there's, uh, you know, a saying that, that my mentor has, has, has said over and over, no margin, no mission, right? You, you do have to keep the lights on, but we do that with the intent of, you know, serving those who otherwise wouldn't be able to, you know, reach care. And so, but the truth is, you know, many of the programs that we run are self-sustaining. It does take a little bit of seed money to say, you know, if I do preventative care with this child with asthma, the insurance company actually saves a ton of money at the end of the year because they're not getting hospitalized. They're not going to the emergency department. If I identify and treat a patient with hepatitis C, yeah, the medicine is expensive, but so much less expensive than a liver transplant, a lifetime worth of, of hospitalizations um, and, and all of those things. So uh, I think it really is important um, to be able to think of it in that way and uh, that we can solve many of, of these problems of, of healthcare inequity um, just by giving folks and giving projects a chance.
4: I yeah, love I that thing. They're more
1: mission. I do too. So, and I was going to say to to add to that, from my experience, I saw when I worked in the revenue cycle, um, a lot of people came in and didn't know a lot of information about their insurance. Like couldn't understand what is a copay, couldn't understand like what is the emergency versus a primary care physician. So they didn't even have the basic terminology to be able to best even understand it. So I would go back to this. I think one, if you're looking at different insurance options, it's also, um, not only if you're looking at marketplace, if you call your local provider, at least for a lot of our patients that came through the door, um, you, if you call like, let's say like um, an Aetna or um, a Florida Blue or anything like, and you spoke to a person, that means you're going to have to wait on the phone for a very long time. And that's the issue too, right? Like, so you'll be speaking to multiple different people, but you finally get a human and you say, this is the amount that I can pay. Some healthcare organizations will meet you where you're at, or I should say, insurances will meet you where you're at. But there's so much legwork on the actual person to do all that because now you have to make all these phone calls. You're going to talk to 20 different people. You're going to be put on hold and that's a full day of work. So It was always a hard thing because when patients would come into the emergency room, the most of the patients that I always worked with didn't have insurance. And then now they're going to have this massive bill and it's not one bill, it's multiple bills, right? Depending on what, if they needed an MRI or what was scheduled and their various different diagnoses. And then the biggest thing is explaining to them, like, if you don't come up with a plan, a payment plan with the organization, this will hit and hit your credit score and then collectors will start calling you. So understanding that there's so many different nuances to healthcare and how do we figure it all out, well, that's the journey of hopefully where Koch scholars get to lean into the conversation and help improve it. But I was gonna say, I know we're getting close to the end and I wanted to make sure we stop on a high note when it talks about like leadership and culture, and we're seeing a change and shift in healthcare and the momentum's slow, but it's definitely there. What is your leadership style? What is your definition when you go into work and you're in these types of settings? How do you best put your foot forward? And can you share what is your motto that you live by?
2: I'll start. So, you know, I have always practiced servant leadership. Um, and this is I, I understand it's getting cool again, um, but, uh, you know, it's something that I actually learned in high school. And I think one of the things that propelled me towards the towards becoming a Coca-Cola scholar. Um, and, and that really means a certain amount of humility that, you know, my motto is always I come into a, a meeting and I say, hi, my name is Anthony. How can I help? And in many ways, I think that that um, uh, kind of diffuses the situation to an extent that I know that we're all here to work together and we're all here, you know, doing whatever the common good is, you know, on, on a grander sense, um, I think it's really important for, you know, for us to develop compassion in the care that we provide. Um, the struggles of the last couple of years have been really tough on us, and so um, it has uh, underscored disparities and healthcare disparities in the healthcare workforce um, for folks. And, and, and I think something as, as Joel has brought up, you know, how, you know, for, how do we make our patients, um, see themselves in the people that are taking care of them. And that is work that Athena is doing in bringing people into the healthcare field and also folks that live in the neighborhood that work in the hospital, that hospital works so much better because they're invested in the care that they're providing their neighbors. Um, to the, to, to the, the piece where I work with a lot in faculty development in, in making sure that we have role models for our junior faculty um, and, and more importantly, until the time when our healthcare, like pop, healthcare worker population, looks like our patient population, as much as I want our patients to be able to see themselves in in our in in their providers, I want my providers to be able to see themselves in our patients, and that goes beyond color. That's more experience. That's just humanity, um, and and I think that's kind of the 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 way that I approach my leadership style.
4: My motto in college was following the three C's confidence, commitment, and conviction. It was mostly a joke because it was mostly in the context of, like, my friends and I were trying to figure out, should we jaywalk or not? And I was, like, confident. This <laughs> but now I've seen that what started out as a joke I actually really like as a way to lead. I guess this is kind of the opposite of Anthony's, but I think starting a venture back startup really requires a lot of ego and thinking, you know, you are able to change the world and the healthcare system fundamentally with a team of that's much smaller and trying to disrupt these, like, billion-dollar healthcare insurance hospital types of companies. And so, you know, that's that's what I like to live by. I like to live with the conviction that we're able to lift, uh, you know, tons and tons of weight and get a lot done with a small team. Um, But also, as a side, I really like to um, be not that serious, too. I think it's important to have the fun, but also intensity um, at the same time. And that's how you make sure, you know, your own team um, finds a lot of fulfillment in the work that we do and cares deeply about the people that we serve, but also has a good time while doing it.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, Anthony, you definitely stole mine. Mine is absolutely servant leadership. Um, yeah. Similarly, in high school, that was like what my whole leadership class uh, was about. It was about servant leadership. And the idea that you have this pyramid where like the CEOs usually at the top, but you flip that upside down, where you put the people that are typically at the bottom, uh, the workers, the people that are going every single day, and you put them first, right? And you serve them first, you celebrate them the same way that you think about something like the COVID pandemic and how it disproportionately impacted those that were first line workers, the people that were the janitors, the people that were the bus drivers, people that were the grocery workers, like they are the lifeblood of everything. And so when I think about leadership, uh, for me, it's about empowering those types of voices, putting a microphone and holding it to the people who often don't get their voices heard, letting them tell their stories because those stories are just as powerful, if not more powerful, than the ones we often hear um, broadcasted all the time. Um, when it comes to my motto, I guess, overall, of like how I think about leadership, I really think it's about inspiring the next generation, which is what Coca-Cola is all about, too. It's about telling the I, like one of my favorite things to do is listen to podcasts and, and read autobiographies, because it's so incredible to read about where people were at our stage of life, the things they were able to do and the positive impacts that they can have in the future. So for me, my whole goal is to leave a legacy of inspiring other people to make sure that they can also start ventures and um, feel like they have the power to change the world and start conversations. And I think that's what being a Coca-Cola scholar is all about.
1: I hands down, 100% agree with you. My motto that I've lived by um, was, actually came from a mentor who's the CEO of a hospital in Jacksonville. And he always said, your, um, your head and your heart are 12 inches apart So use your heart to infuse your brain with what are the best business acumen choices to serve your population, to serve the community. And so I always like to think like when I'm making a major decision or if there's a conviction or if there's something I need some confidence in, I go back to what is my heart saying and what's the best direction to be able to help others. And that goes back to Anthony, what you mentioned just a second ago is how can I help you? How can I serve you today? And that is what you just mentioned, Joelle, is literally the Coke motto. I feel like that we all embody as Coke scholars. So with that, we're going to head into the fast five, which they told me it's got to be really quick. It's the first thing that pops into your mind. So to change it up, the first question is, what are two apps or websites you can't live without? Any takers?
3: TikTok, Google.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I still don't have
2: um, TikTok Amazon yet. and... <laughs> My
4: outlook. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was going to say Slack and TikTok, ideally at the same time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that means I need to download TikTok.